I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Back in 2001, that tragic event, regardless of where you came from, anywhere in the world, has changed your life forever. My guest today is my dear friend, Koshal Choksi, who witnessed the devastation of 9-11 before his own eyes and narrowly escaped death. His life was never again the same. Suddenly, all of his pursuits for everything we engage in a New York lifestyle, if you want, felt meaningless. He felt void from within himself like he had never felt before. Until one day, he reluctantly decided to spend an afternoon with a spiritual master in New York City. From being a Wall Street trader immersed in the material world to embarking on a quest to find answers to life's biggest questions, Kushal wrote a book that releases today about his doubts and struggles and revelations on a spiritual path as a left-brained skeptic New Yorker going on the wings of a prayer. It's been a long time. We haven't met for, what, two and a half years almost, maybe more, actually. Perhaps more. Last two years was just, just COVID, right? So I think I would say exactly. almost... Exactly. <laughs> last two years don't count. Yeah, Yeah, they don't count. Yeah. I think I met you last in 2019. Isn't that where your book came out? 18? No, no. 17 is one. Uh, 17? One, yeah, yeah. Ah, 17, I met you first and 18, I met you in New York. Exactly. So we met again in New York 2018. And I have to say openly, I mean, for everyone listening to us. So Kushal to me was a very spiritual friend, okay, that gave me the joy of spending time with uh, Shri Shri Ravi Shankar through a common friend uh, after Soul for Happy a common friend introduced us and, and Kushal basically said, oh, you should meet Shri Shri and I. And I had the joy because of your kindness and hospitality to spend time with him. But then I never knew. I mean, I knew you were like a businessman and in the, the New York lifestyle of finance and stuff like that. But then I never knew the background story until we connected maybe a month ago about your upcoming book. And I was like, these are the kinds of things you tell your friends, man. You know, you don't don't let me know about it from a published book. But uh, anyway, so we we decided to get together and tell you about Kushal's story today, which is on the anniversary of the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which definitely I believe is the one of the events that totally shaped our life everywhere in the world. So before we do that, you are truly a like a you were like a diehard businessman with all of the New York elements before we met. I was as strong as they come. Type A, left brain, determined to achieve that American dream types, putting everything aside, prioritizing it lower just to run after that types. And I think that intense alpha culture of Wall Street kind of made it very natural for me to 
functions or emulate that that lifestyle, if you will. And to that extent that I even stopped asking what I was doing, why I was doing it. Just yeah, I was just I know flowing with a strong yeah. current of time. What did you do on Wall Street? I used to be a quant, a trader, a portfolio manager. So I played of different roles throughout my 15 year long career, but uh, mostly around trading and money management. Yeah. And so you're like one of those people that are under enormous pressure, you know, trying to look at numbers, jumping up and down on a screen and shouting at people and say, buy this and sell that. And right. That would fairly accurately capture um, <laughs> okay. a morning in, in, on a trading desk, yeah. uh, which I was part of. Yeah. Totally didn't come across that way when we met at all. When we met, you were like this very zen, smiley, very relaxed, very uh, easygoing, you know, person. What happened? Perhaps I had read your book. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. I think my practice of breathwork and meditation definitely helped me ask or prompted me to ask bigger questions in life. Was there more to life than than just chasing big bonuses or running after the American dream? Was there more to it? Mm. And, you know, of course, this 9-11, a big event, a monumental event like that kind of woke me up from my reverie and pushed me to that part of that corner of my life where I, I took a pause and asked deeper questions about what was I really doing, you know, sort of questioning the status quo, wondering if there was more to life than what met the eye. And that kind of got me down the rabbit hole of exploring this, this whole science of breathwork and meditation. I'll be quite reluctantly. <laughs> I know. I suffered the same thing as a young man engineer on the other side of the extreme hopeless cases. You know, I think trading floor is one end and engineers and mathematicians are on the other end. <laughs> same breed though. Yeah. And very reluctantly, I, my journey to, to really caring for myself and caring for what matters, I think, took a, a few big hits to get there. Your big experience was, which I actually, by the way, everyone listening to us, I don't know the story. So I'm going to be listening to this with you for the first time. So you text me a month ago and say, oh, I mean, my next book is coming out and it's about 9-11 because I was part of 9-11. What? That's it. This is the last thing I'm going to say today. You start telling me what happened. You know, it was perhaps when we met, I probably didn't talk about it because I didn't talk about it in general to anyone. Even to my wife, I I kind of barely, in a rare occasion, we would talk about it. And when my friends would ask, I would just simplify it and avoid going there. Um, just by saying, oh, it happened, I came out, uh, ain't I lucky that I'm here in front of you? So I would just avoid that. But that morning started just like any other morning. And, and please interrupt me. I don't want to go too much in depth to trigger anything for anyone. But Go anywhere. <laughs> So yeah, that morning started, um, I, I was on my way to work. Of course, the mind was reeling with all these thoughts and what I had to do that day. I was completely oblivious to what was happening around me. And I was in the World Trade Center when the first plane hit the North Tower. And there was a huge high decibel blast followed by a, a ghastly hiss. And no one had really known what had happened in that moment. But suddenly, the world which was spinning normally had just kind of tumbled and people were just, in one instance, walking normally, going about their lives, and in the next instance, just running in opposite directions, not knowing what had happened. Somebody was saying, bomb has gone off. Somebody was just 
screaming, just the typical fight or flight response had just kicked in in the most indiscreet way that I'd seen ever. And I froze for a few seconds. I just stood there not knowing what to do. But a better part of me told me that I should just move away. So I, I moved out of the World Trade Center. And on my way out, there was a security person who was suggesting everyone to be inside the building. They say, go inside. It's very unsafe out there. It's, there was this gray haze outside, cement chips and little fireballs and all this. It was like a like a scene from an apocalyptic movie. It was just like things were just raining outside after the explosion. And so he said, just go in, stay in the core, the center of the building, do not come out. And those who work here go up on their desks and just, just wait wow. for further instructions. And in that moment, I had this voice from behind that said, no, just go. Let's not listen to him. Let's just go. Tap my shoulder and say, let's just go out of here. And I, for some reason, that conviction, that voice, I just exceeded to it and I submitted to it and I just ran out. And when I ran out, I was just I'm looking at this hole, that escape in front of me which, with a huge gaping hole in the facade of the building. And I'm just trying to understand how could something like this ever happen? Did a plane make a wrong left turn on its glide path towards LaGuardia? What happened? And as I'm looking, another plane comes from the left side of my frame of vision and just boom bangs into the to the south tower spitting a huge ball of fire on the other side you probably would have seen some of those very disturbing images and in that point of time i realized that there was something amiss here there's perhaps some deliberate action here this is not what seems very innocent or innocuous i should say and i just i just decided to walk away from it i just when i collect myself i decided to walk away towards the east river and as i'm walking I hear this rumbling and this, some screams, and I turn around, and this North Tower is collapsing, uh, wow. creating a huge cloud of dust and smoke and debris, which is chasing people through that narrow alleys of Lower Manhattan, and just enveloping everything that's coming in its way. And I'm, I'm looking at it and just dashing away from it down the maiden lane, and just at the end of that street is a little ferry landing little slip and a commuter boat was pulling out and the gangway is already pulled in but that captain looks at me running towards the boat he pauses and i leap from from the land on just onto the boat just like a huge leap and i made it out and then that smog and dust just comes and almost touches us and this goes back like that and covers the entire skyline a minute later the entire skyline is covered you couldn't see a single building and we were just on the east river perhaps i became that a statistic you know survivor who happened to be on the last boat on that day that left manhattan mm. and that's how i kind of got out of it but again it was just too much for senses to process like what happened this all was literally a few minutes right this was all a matter of 20, 25 minutes. Yeah. Perhaps a little more. Which floor were you on when? Uh... I was on the mezzanine. Okay. I was on the mezzanine. So mm -hmm. fortunately, I was not too high up there. And so you get that first explosion and you didn't think much. You just walked out. You know, it didn't take you a little bit of time to talk to others or. There was no opportunity to talk to others. People were just, there was a pandemonium. There were people mm -hmm. who were just running. I saw this a poor lady kind of fall as she was trying to go out and usually 
the chivalrous men would give her a hand to stand up, they were just walking over her. They were like, there was a oh little God. stampede. And I'm like, what is just happening? So in that moment, there was no opportunity to have any rational conversation with anyone. Mm. So I just did what felt right in that moment to me, just like everybody was doing what felt right to them in that moment. And the voice that you talk about, is that a person that you could recognize afterward? The voice that said, no, keep moving, go out of the building? I talk about him extensively in my book, but I could not find him after that on that day. I did meet him later on and he became a companion. Aha. I did meet him at some point in time, but it was, it was really a, call it providence, call it just the slate of hand of consciousness, but it was very, very surreal how I just came out moved away and somehow continued where I was heading. Okay, so now you're on that boat, you're escaping from Manhattan and you're looking back at all of this. I'm looking at it and the, the boat just turns around the Manhattan the corner and then, you know, there's, as we are, now we are on Hudson on the west side of the island and that moment the South Tower just comes down, oh. you know, right in front of our eyes. And I, more, I, I can close my eyes and, and I can see that till today, this whole, it's in high definition. It, I have that whole thing etched so deep in my memory. It was something that I could not imagine that I was witnessing. And yeah, it was a very numbing feeling that w what's just happening. You know, it's, you've only seen something like this, perhaps not even something like this, only in, in action movies and thrillers, but yeah, to witness something like this and to have just stepped away from it a few moments ago, I did not know whether I should feel, it was a very mixed feeling in my head. One side I was feeling grateful, on the other side I was feeling what just happened. So yeah, I was feeling what would have happened to those people who listened to that security person and went in. All these feelings were just, why did I not listen to him? There were no answers, just questions. Did you lose any of your friends in the building? Luckily not. Mm. Luckily not. But I know people who lost friends and, and colleagues. So it did not make it any, any easier. In that yeah. yeah. So on a wing and a prayer is, is not just about that experience. It's about the rest of your experience. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So in the, in the days that followed, I had a very interesting dichotomy in my head. On one side, I had this new lease of life and I wanted to go after everything that I was doing with even more energy. Okay, now I have some more time, a bonus time in my life. So I need to finish the unfinished business, you know, that just completely go after that. Hold on, hold on. What does that mean? What is a bonus time? I just felt like I could have perished in that haze that day. Mm. And now that I'm alive, it felt like there was life just gave me another chance. It just said, okay, you know, here you go back again. And so I've, at some level I felt it was so touch and go that it could have crumbled on any side, right? So I felt, yeah. all right, now I have some more time on my hands. Mm. I have to finish everything that I set out to do why I immigrated to this country, you know. Mm. How much earlier before 9-11 did you arrive in the US? Three years. Wow. That's like a a clear invitation to go be part of those events, huh? Perhaps, yeah. perhaps. I, I think you're right. It's, I think it's all choreographed in a way that you go through certain yeah. life experiences. 
I find it really interesting when events of this magnitude wake us up to the reality that we had a bonus day today, right? It wasn't supposed to be this way because I honestly think that when I was crossing the road coming here for the recording, I had a bonus road crossing, you know, people perish in road crossings and to COVID and to, you know, other diseases and to fights and to a lot of things every single day. And yet we only need to see two towers collapsing to realize that, oh, I get to live another day, even though we never really had any signed agreement that says you're going to live tomorrow. You know, you know how shocking that is when you look at it. That is so true. I think every moment is a is an invitation, is a realization to to accept that. But perhaps we are so conditioned that you need something like a club hitting your head exactly. to, to wake up from it and say, oh no, this was significant. The road yeah. crossing is just, oh man. Yeah. So that yeah. taking for granted just disappears when it's so obvious. Catastrophe. It's <laughs> yeah. so obvious. It's yeah. so big in magnitude. Yeah. That loud noise, only that loud a noise can wake us up. Yeah. Okay, so you go from there and you start to say, okay, I have a bonus day. I need to finish what I have not visited. What was that? I mean, what is it that we haven't finished? Well, I, I wanted to become vice president and managing director at my job. I want that, that fast car. I wanted a bigger house. All those things, that immigrant dream with which I came to this country. I wanted to do all that. Wow. So 9-11 gets you even further down the line of I want to do more things? Well... Part of me is asking for that, mm -hmm. but the other part of me is saying, but what's the point? Mm -hmm. you, know, you want all these, you want to work 70 hour weeks to get to that point where you want to be, but what is the point after all? What if something like this were to ever happen again and you're not so fortunate? So it was like driving with a gas pedal and a, and a brakes <laughs> at, at the same time mm. and wanting to get somewhere with that diametrically opposite forces pulling in, in opposite directions. And that created a kind of void that I'd never experienced in my life where I did not know how to get rid of that feeling. What do I do? There was no way out. And to find a way out, I started traveling the world. I started doing this. I started doing that. I started even started pursuing all these things that I've always wanted to do, like, like flying a plane, like learning to play an instrument, everything. I even changed jobs, went from a nine to five traditional investment bank to I went to a, a nondescript startup looking for some adrenaline rush there. But every time I go, it creates some excitement. Soon it wears thin and I keep coming back to the same place. I keep coming back to the same void. And next time I raise the bar and do something even crazier. And the same same behavior would just keep perpetuating to the point I was exhausted by that. That is such an amazing portrayal of life, honestly. So you get into the biggest catastrophe any human being can get into. You run out of it and you go like, okay, let me now realize the dream. But the dream is so conditioned in us, right? The dream is, okay, now I need to do something big with my life. That must be a bigger car, must be flying a plane, must be working in a startup. And we, we become so misled. Huh? So it's not... Yeah, it's not really a wake-up call. It's almost like a, a bullet that runs you further on the same path, right? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on its head, that conditioning, patterns with which we have grown in the surroundings that we have been molded into, which forces us to respond to life in, in but one way, the way that the world expects us to be. 
I mean, isn't in the in the eyes of the world giving up your corporate promising career to join a startup something very cool? Isn't <laughs> going to scale Patagonian Andes and do a backpacking for ten days in wilderness? Isn't that adventurous and sexy? So those were my conditionings, and that took me and pushed me in that direction. But it didn't last too long mm. because. There's no real essence in it. There's no essence in it. It's yeah. just a mere distraction. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. So, how long did you keep doing that waste of life for? About three years, I would say. Oh man, you are stubborn. I was. I was not ready to give up. I was yeah. not ready to give up. Okay. Let's get to the good parts then. <laughs> <laughs> and one afternoon, one Friday afternoon, the spiritual master from India, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar who you and I met in Miami in 2017 again together. He was visiting New York and a very dear friend of mine said, just come meet him. And truth be told, Mo, I was averse to concept of a master, averse to a concept of a, yeah. of a teacher who can, who can be in this position to lead us through. And I said, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'm busy. I actually had work that day. I was very busy and said, I'm sorry, I can't come. But in a funny sequence of events, I just ended up there somehow. And that was the first time in my life I actually meditated in his presence. Before that, I mean, there's a part I skipped where to look for that fulfillment, I started reading stuff. I started meeting different people. I started meditating. I tried all these different things. But for some reason, I could not go too far. It was very dry. It was very cut and dry. And it was very intellectual, very cerebral at some level. Hmm. I could not go deeper into it. It just proved like another of my travels where I go there. Mm, wow, this makes sense. Yes, consciousness. Great. But now what? So the first time I experienced that meditation, it was ever, never, ever in my life before I had experienced that stillness in this space between my ears. You know, it was just so calming, so still time of that 20 minutes where I felt that mind without any thoughts. And of course, the left brain, Wall Street trained mind kind of started questioning it, whether was there really something in it? Was I really sleeping? Was this a, how can I be sure this was not a placebo effect? Like, what is it? Was I really <laughs> meditating? So I was, we are horrible. Left brainers, we are horrible. It's like, it's, been, it. it's been amazing, right? But you have to really, you know, throw bullets through it, right? You, yeah. you have to dig holes in it. Like, what's wrong with you? Sometimes we are in our own way, you know, we, mm -hmm. we, we are the only ones in our own way, standing in our own way. But the experience was irrefutable, right? That experience was there. I was looking, this mind was asking these questions, but at the same time, there was a tangible experience. And so I said, you know, let me just keep going a little deeper, digging a little deeper. And that began my journey. I learned this very, very powerful breathwork technique called sky breath. And when I experienced that, it was, again, a much deeper experience of that calm and lasting even longer. And I realized that perhaps there is something in here that I'm looking for. I did not know again. And, and again, I was still very guarded. I was still looking for validation, research. I started reading research. And then I came across some amazing kind of nuggets of research and understood the science behind how this breath work worked. And this is early 2000, right? There are no influencers talking about meditation people there are no there's not even a smartphone there are no apps and i still remember talking to my colleagues and and being mocked at because 
meditation was still viewed as something anti-ambition or something, a pursuit for a later part of your life and you're done with everything else. And when you have time, you you perhaps indulge in one of those things. So that kept me going all out in it. But at the same time, there was something in it that was pulling me in that direction. Yes, there's something here, something here. And just for that experience, I kept coming back to it. But what really shifted was my awareness, frankly, that how the sky breath was really working. And that was actually a, an eye-opening moment for me. So suddenly the left brain, uh, always on, always engaged, numbers, calculations, gets those moments of silence, still investigates a little bit, but you cannot deny the, the feeling, right? Yes. Now, of course, Sri Sri doesn't stay in New York. You had that one experience and you're like, okay, there's something there, but that's not enough for most of us. Yes. And it wasn't enough for me either. And so with Sri Sri, that, that afternoon I meditated. And then after he left, there was this, that same group that had organized that talk had organized a sky breath meditation workshop. Where What's I a sky this. breath? It's a Sanskrit word called Sudarshan Kriya. Mm -hmm. And the sky breath is just the rhythmic breathing technique, mm. which uses the rhythm of our own natural rhythms of our own breath to kind of introduce coherence in our, our physical breath, cognitive memory, intellectual, all these functions that we have. It just brings alliance and brings establishes that coherence in those functions. So you naturally feel peaceful, calm, you naturally feel connected to who you really are, to yourself. Because all these times that I've tried these different things in my spiritual shopping days and not gone any further. <laughs> What's spiritual shopping? Well, that, that's what my <laughs> wife used to make fun of me. It's like, you're trying everything, but you're not sticking with anything, you know? Mm -hmm. And you tried this, you tried that. I tried all these different practices, different forms of meditations, different modalities of breathwork. Nowhere I could find an experience. Everything remain as a very strong feel-good intellectual concept. Perhaps I did not have that, that emotional maturity to experience that mm. in that time. But bottom line is I could not get what they were trying to impart, really. When I tried this sky breath, it felt like that missing piece of puzzle had just, just fallen in place. And you know, when the first time, I, I still remember when I did that breathing, out of nowhere, this images from that morning of 9-11, this very vivid images of when I'd seen these people jump from this high, oh. high towers right in front of me, something that had, that had lived with me since. All that was coming up. And I'm telling myself, this is supposed to be joyful. This is supposed to be kind of creating peace. What's happening? And it's somewhere along the way with all these thoughts, I'm, I'm still breathing guided by Shri Shri's voice on a tape, I'm still breathing, all these thoughts come out of nowhere and create this emotional upheaval, the turbulence in my head, and then and they rise and then leave. They just rise and then just, just vanish. And then it leaves me that I still remember that peak experience after that. I just felt so almost cleansed, you know, it was like scrubbed, sanded of all these things that were in there. It just felt like lighter from inside. And Again, you know, I was like, but how does this really work? What just happened? And I looked at the scientific studies and why it actually happened. I realized that it works on this body of knowledge of impressions that we all collect. Any 
pleasant or unpleasant events that we go through in life leaves an impression in our subconscious. Let's say something as innocent as wanting to have a coffee. Mm. You want a coffee today, you like it. Tomorrow you want another cup of it. Third day you want it again because last two days it was really part of your morning routine. And now the fourth day you don't find coffee and you feel like ah, something's off. It's 8 a.m. and your mind runs towards the, the kitchen to get that coffee. So this impression of wanting to have that coffee has created some sort of what you alluded to earlier, conditioning in our own mind. That pattern, a deep-rooted, like a scoff mark. And what a pleasant impressions create wanting to have that more and something that's unpleasant pushes away from it. What I understood, what it opened my eyes to is that this sky breath was releasing these impressions that were debilitating, that were lodged deep into the subconscious just through the action of breath. And that was amazing at some level. I mean, why? Some people say that it's because our brain gets reconfigured. You oxygenate parts of it and you offer less oxygen to others or whatever. I don't know. So it gets reconfigured and suddenly those thoughts are released. What is it? What happens to us when we are in that high, if you want, when we do breath work? So I will tell, I'll answer this question from two points of view, right? One from the point of view of science, then the other from the point of view of my own personal experience, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. From the scientifically, like from the research point of view, what I, I learned is that it creates the, the serotonin, it creates the, the happiness hormone in you. But just within two weeks of practicing, it reduces the production of cortisol, the stress hormone or the grief hormone by 56% in our system. Wow. It improves the level of quality of sleep by almost like 200%. These are all scientific studies. There's just one other study that recently that came out from, from Yale where they compare sky breath with other modalities of breath and in all different emotional and sort of mindfulness kind of parameters that one can quantify this whole science into. And they established how this technique, based on the study, based on the you know, scientific study, how it impacts us. But that's research. That's boring. For me, what really I experience is that, that, state, of, that state of calmness. Every time I practiced it, it was consistently taking me there. Every time I, I did my sky breath, I was in that space where I've experienced that mind without no mind, that the Zen people call it motion, right? that mind without thoughts. And at some point of time, I stopped questioning it <laughs> because it was a very tangible, hard experience that I had. And so sometimes whenever there is a conflict between the head and the heart, the heart always takes the cake, right? So I decided to just give it in, just see what is what are more dimensions in it? Because the more I started to practice, I realized that there's, there's a huge body of knowledge that I could keep diving into and, and it was opening different dimensions to, to this inner world. So take us through the rest of your journey. So we now have a changed man. As I said, the first time I met you, I couldn't have imagined you as a, as a floor trader, like the, the one on the Wall Street floor. So I met you like maybe 15 years later, right? So there was years and years of practice. How did life change during those years? You know, it was, when I look back, I feel it was all a happening and not doing anything. Mm. 
all the time before that, I was always focused on doing something. I was always focused on taking charge of things and fixing it for me. That's a curse. I, I don't know if I may use that word that the engineers have. You want to fix things that are broken in front of us. And so that part of me wanted to just take it in my hands, figure it all out and, and fix it. And therein lied a strong sense of effort. But the more effort I put in, I realized that more I was going away from it. Because the body and mind have two different languages. Language of body is effort. You want to grow muscles, you have to put in effort, you have to resist it. But for the growth of mind, to be able to manage your own mind, the language is effortlessness. And that's what came to my realization that I didn't really have to do anything. I just had to be there as if I was on the train now. You know, I had made the effort to buy the ticket, come to the right platform, got onto the right train. And now I just had to be running up and down the train wasn't going to get me there any faster. So it was a very hard thing for me to accept more, to not do anything. It did not come naturally to me because my mind, the way I was wired, had to do something at every moment. What I kind of learned along the way is that sometimes there's a beautiful balance between just doing and being and that effort and effortlessness. You put some effort to get somewhere and then you have to drop it and just be there. And I started experiencing that. There was a different door that opened in my awareness where I said, okay, fine. I'm still going to pursue everything that I want to do in my life. It's not like I'm going to give up all that, become a monk and go in a cave and that's how I'm going to look for myself. No, I, I realized I had the complete freedom to do everything that I wanted to do. But at the same time, I just had to sit and breathe 20 minutes a day. And that took care of another aspect of my life. That took care of, that just added so much texture to otherwise a rat race that I was part of. It created that a well-rounded uh, life for me personally. I have to say, I, uh, I will take away what you just said as one of my gold nuggets from slow-mo because yeah, we engineers are all about fixing things. Sadly, I believe most of us in the modern world now are in that space. It's all about doing, doing, doing. And I, I love the analogy of the train. Yeah, you can do a bit and get on the train, but yeah, running around the train is not going to get you there faster, I think. It's a very wise way of looking at it. It's hard to recognize for most of us that we are on the train though, because so much of the of the physical world responds to your actions, not to your being. And, and I think it's uh, somehow difficult for people to recognize that maybe I should just be there. And maybe there is a bigger train that I'm not aware of that's taking me from A to B, which by the way is mostly how life works really. And that's your conditioning, right? Which, which we talked about earlier. I think, you know, when I read your book, Solve for Happy back in that day, I actually got your book at Wohasu in 17. Oh, and so you're one and of when, the I, first. when I read that, um, <laughs> if I remember correctly, you had this equation there, yeah, where one of the elements in that equations was the perception, the credit you give to the perception. And when I thought about it, it was it resonated so strongly with me because what I talk about impression or this conditioning, it's actually coming from there. It's it's that same thing. Our perception is driven from our conditioning, and so it's kind of really struck a chord with me that, yes, this is it. Because we tend to look at everything from our own conditioning, but the minute that thing drops, the quantity on the right-hand side automatically goes up. And, and so your happiness quotient goes up. 
Yeah. So on the back cover of your book, you ask the question, what is the point of it all? You say to the reader, if you're asking yourself that question, then this book is for you. What's the point of it all? <laughs> Have you figured that out? <laughs> I think what I learned from Sri Sri Ravi Shankar is that the point of it all is, and this is just my my learning, okay? The point of it all is to shift that attention from what about me to what can I do for others? I believe that that is an answer to my what is the point of it all. But everybody has a different answer. Mm. Since you asked, I, I just shared what is my learning and what resonates the most with me. Because if I look at my life earlier, it was all about me, me, me. I, I need to get this for me, for my family, for my bank balance, you know, my comfort. And there's a joy in it. But that is a very ephemeral joy. That's, that, that joy doesn't stay too long or it has a shelf life. But the minute that focus kind of shifts a little bit towards what can I do to perhaps create some small impact somewhere, whether even if it's one mind, what can I do? Can I be there for others? That little bit of that shift just changes, that creates that expansion within and that creates a complete shift in the quality of one's life. And such is my experience. Mm. I, uh, so I love both answers. I love that this is what's the, what the point is, but I also love that you say that others can see a different point if they want to. And that's also a, the truth that there could be, what is your point of it all, I think is a very interesting question. Isn't it everyone's own journey at some point of time? See, my journey got triggered by 9-11. Somebody else's journey could have gotten triggered by, by this pandemic. Oh. Yeah. Anyone awake should have, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I know what triggered your journey. And it's, life does give us some opportunity to ask these questions. And at that point of time, this, this question does come. What am I doing here? What's the point? And most of the time, the noise in the life takes over it. It's very convenient to push that question aside. And because it's, when you think about it, it's a very, it's not a very comforting question to be. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's a very confronting question, I think. And I have to admit, I mean, it's that confrontation that we avoid because the mind will say, well, I'm doing what I'm, I was told I should do. You know, this is uh, how the, the big successful people on TV get to be successful and big and on TV. And so I'm doing what I'm told. Why am I even thinking or questioning this? Am I lazy? Should I not be just putting my head down and getting to work? I think that's the interesting part, but perhaps I will, uh, I will then leave our listeners to, uh, to think about that. I think that's a good point to break and, and tell them what's the point of it all. I mean, an interesting way, I, what I love about, about your story, Kushal, is that it starts with a massive event. It starts with 9-11. It's, I don't think there is a bigger event in our modern history. And yet I think the big event of the story is finding yourself, is finding a path that takes you from who you were as a person to who actually have always been, who you were always supposed to search for. I think that truly is an interesting view of 9-11. There has been many books out there about 9-11. I don't know how many of them spoke about 9-11 in terms of spiritual transformation. So with that, I will thank you very much for your time. I wish you all the best of luck. You're releasing 
on the day, right? So 9-11 is your release day for the book. It's out for, for pre-order now and it should be releasing anytime now. Perfect. And uh, I wish you all the best of luck for that. And I wish all of our listeners a an interesting reflection on, I think, my biggest two takeaways on why we keep running when we're inside the train and uh, and what's the point of it all. If you've enjoyed our conversation, please share it with those that you love and spread the message to people that you think need to hear it. Find me on social media and stay in touch. Uh, ask me any question, mo underscore gaudet on Instagram or uh, mo gaudet on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, if you haven't already rated the podcast five stars, please go ahead and do that on Apple Podcast. It really helps us spread the message. And uh, perhaps one of the points of it all is that regardless of how busy you are today, there's always a little bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.